in this war right now, Netanyahu doesn't have a clear, so to speak, operational goal. He has no plan for what happens in Gaza when he declares victory. What does he do with two and a quarter million Palestinians? What does he do with Gaza? So long as his stated goal is to claim the entirety of the land for Israel and to prevent Palestinian statehood. Welcome to the Eliamet podcast series. I have the pleasure to host in this podcast Yezid Saich. He's a senior fellow at the Malcolm uh, Kerr Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, where he leads the program on civil-military relations in Arab states. His work focuses on the comparative political and economic roles of Arab armed forces, the impact of war on states and societies, the politics of post-conflict reconstruction, and security sector transformation in Arab transitions and authoritarian resurrections. Dr. Saik, thank you very much for having this discussion with me at these very difficult times uh, with the war between Israel and Hamas going on and what is happening in uh, the Middle East. Dr. Saik, you were directly involved in the peace process for many years. When did the prospect for peace and the solution of the two states disappear? What went so wrong so that the Palestinians have a terrorist organization like Hamas governing them and Israel has hardliners like Netanyahu and far-right parties? Thanks for the opportunity to take part in uh, an Eliamep activity. I have a long history with Eliamep going back to August 1993 when I took part in the so-called Khalki summer school. And I mentioned this in part because that is where I was at the time when we all heard that secret talks between the government of Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization uh, taking place in the Norwegian capital Oslo had reached an agreement that would produce a new political recognition and a new peace process. Um, at that time, um, a, f- a friend, a colleague, uh, an Israeli scholar and strategic analyst, Shai Feldman, was also there lecturing on the same course. And so the two of us, um, at the request of Eliamep, organized a quick panel discussion to assess the meaning of the new agreement and whether it would lead to peace. Um And I think that's a very pertinent backdrop to my answer to your question, because, of course, we both welcomed um, the the breakthrough. I had already been involved in the peace process uh, as a strategic advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the peace process that was launched at the Madrid Peace Conference in late 1991. So I had some inside knowledge and, uh, you know, let's say uh, authority in the in the in the matter. Um, my assessment at the time was that the Oslo Accords, what was very important about them was that they allowed for direct political recognition by the PLO of the government of Israel and the state of Israel and by the government of Israel of the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people. So there is an act of mutual recognition um, of national representation. The accord itself 
um, however, was worrying because it recreated Israeli control that had been established after Israel occupied the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza Strip in 1967, which was managed by a military government with an attached civil administration. It, in a sense, replaced these with a new form of Israeli control where the autonomous Palestinian Authority would nonetheless not have complete freedom in managing any of the key aspects of normal life in the occupied Palestinian territories, Israel would still control the population register. So people, Palestinians who were born or married or immigrated, would not be recognized and could not receive official identity documents unless the Israeli counterpart to the Palestinian Ministry of Social Affairs approved the request for such identification. Of course, in most cases, this was forthcoming, but the point is that Israel had veto power over who was deemed to be a legitimate resident and inhabitant of these territories. The same for the registration of land and land sales. None, nothing was deemed fully official with the protection of law unless the Israeli land registration uh, body uh, approved uh, land sales or, or other matters dealing with land that the, that various Palestinian parties, whether public or private, would have undertaken. And this meant that in areas that weren't under full Palestinian autonomous control, Israel, in fact, denied requests for sale, purchase, or construction by Palestinians in about two-thirds of the entire West Bank and in most of, if not all, of East Jerusalem that wasn't already privately owned. And the same goes on for export and import trade permits, for access to the airwaves, for radio or television broadcasts, and so on and so forth. So my concern was that this was a recipe for future confrontation, and I assumed that um, sooner or later the Palestinians would have to push back the continuing expansion of settlements in the occupied territories, which continued every single day, even when the Oslo Accords were signed, and under every Israeli government, whether of the right or of the so-called left, whether of the Likud party or of the Labour party. So, so, so Dr. Say, you are saying that you were not very optimistic even after the uh, the Oslo Agreement. No. Not very optimistic that even if Hitchcock Rabin was not murdered, that things would have worked and peace would come to your region between Palestinians and Israelis. That That's a very good question. Um, but no, I was, in fact, very optimistic. I, um, I was involved directly as a negotiator after the Oslo Accords, and helped negotiate the what was called the Framework Agreement of May 1994, although I had many misgivings about that agreement and left the, left the uh, official delegation prior to that um, because of what I saw as mishandling by the Palestinian leadership. Nonetheless, I returned um, in the late 1990s to help prepare for what were known as the final status negotiations. And I did all of this um, because, among other things, I was optimistic that there was a real chance for peace and that there was room for a reasonable agreement. Um, but I'm sort of laying the, setting the stage, if you like, laying the backdrop to say that there were 
two or three, well, I'd say three key elements that resulted in the failure of the peace process in, in the year 2000. And that is why the year 2000 for me, to answer your original question, was the moment when I saw that the peace process um, had no future and that the two-state solution had no future. Um, so the first of these was that Israel had recreated its control of the Palestinian occupied territories and of the population, of the natural resources, of the economy, and so on. And that this, therefore, needed confrontation. I didn't think, I mean, I didn't uh, necessarily expect or uh, advocate armed confrontation, but I knew that the Palestinians should mobilize the way they did in the first intifada uh, in for unarmed protest to push back on the creation of new settlements, which happened in the 1990s. And I felt that instead that the Palestinian Authority and the various Palestinian national movements, such as the dominant Fatah movement of PLO leader Yasser Arafat, should have been ready to demonstrate, to mobilize people in large peaceful demonstrations in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Gaza, every time Israel built new settlement housing or built a new settlement, as they did, for instance, in 1998, just south of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and 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 uh, Bethlehem, and this would have been legitimate, and moreover, there would have been significant support within Israel, within the large peace camp in Israel, and support within the international community, uh, and especially in the West. So this there there was a, a a failure on the part of the Israeli government to behave in ways that would assist the peace process to move forward. Instead, we saw continued colonization. Also, the Israeli government, and this was under Rabin, although I think Rabin was the one Israeli politician who I think started to have a genuine shift in his political uh, attitude. And although he was not committed initially to having a Palestinian state, I think that by the time he died, he was moving in the direction where at least one day he would have been ready to sign that deal. Um, but I think even he and other Israeli leaders such as Shimon Peres or Benjamin Netanyahu or Hud Barak, all the prime ministers of that period, all of them were responsible for the continued colonization. But also, even under Rabin, there was a regular resort to what is known in international law as collective punishment, where when various Palestinian actors undertook anything that violated the agreement here, for instance, we're thinking of, say, uh, uh, attacks by Hamas in the 1990s, the response was to close off different Palestinian cities from each other, because remember, most of the, or all of the territory separating each town or village and city from the other in Gaza and inside the West Bank and in East Jerusalem is controlled, was was and is controlled by Israeli forces. And so the government could simply shut down the entire area to all movement of workers and goods and therefore caused a great deal of damage to the local economy. This but, created a very negative environment. So that was one factor. But how uh, are the Israelis going to defend themselves? We see what Hamas, uh, they are terrorists. We see that um, they try to protect themselves, Hamas fighters, by uh, putting civilians, Palestinian civilians, um, in buildings that they know 
that uh, Israel will maybe bomb because they know that Hamas is hiding there. I mean, isn't that a thing that has to do with with both sides when we talk about uh, Hamas and I make very clear the, the difference? I mean, I think, you know, posing a question which ignores what happens for 30 years before that moment in time is not you know, is not reasonable and not logical. Um, let me let me address your question immediately. And then if you wish, we go back to why there was a moment when everything collapsed. Firstly, right now, in the past month, um, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, where there is no war, where there is no Hamas, 170 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli soldiers and armed settlers. So, you know, in answer to your question, if we're looking at uh, what what explains this kind of behavior, then you have to have an answer for what what allows Israeli settlers to be killing Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. They do this because they have the protection of the Israeli state. They have the protection of Israeli soldiers who at times watch while this happens and at other times assist the settlers. So we have a situation that is approaching an explosion in the West Bank and East Jerusalem that is engineered by far-right parties that are now in power in Israel, where two of the key ministries are held by the far-right, which have a direct role in policy in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So Hamas is not there, and yet this is what we have. Now, turning to Gaza... I think the argument that Hamas deliberately puts civilians in buildings, I think this is, I mean, frankly, it's it starts to be a shameful um, belief. Um, we're talking about an area that has something like the population of, say, Athens, and where, where there are some open spaces, but where most of the territory, the tiny territory, is built up and urbanized. And it's like expecting, say, <laughs> the civilians of Athens to move out of Exarchia, Neapoli, you know, Kolonaki, and all move down into Paleofaliro. Um, and that if, you know, th- and that if they haven't moved, that's their fault. And it's the fault of, you know, some political organization or military force for having put them there. Fighting is going on in an urban city like Mariupol or like Melitopol in, in Ukraine. And, you know, in a highly densely populated zone, we saw Israel demanding that 1.1 million Palestinians leave the entirety of the northern Gaza Strip. They moved to the south. A lot of them did move and then got bombed in the south. Um, you, you know, how do you how do you actually how do you wage a war in an area full of civilians uh, and somehow expect the civilians to magically disappear. And then if they do get killed, you you say, oh, well, it's Hamas's fault. They use them as human shields. Um, you should maybe refer to the extensive study by Israeli academic Neve Gordon, who has, in fact, established a very long habit by Israeli forces and soldiers in Gaza, especially, of using Palestinian civilians as human shields. This is something that is documented. So I find it quite extraordinary to to be talking about Hamas deliberately using people as human shields. I think I blame Hamas for a great, great deal. I'm furious at Hamas for what it has done 
not only, I mean, for the slaughter of Israeli non-combatants, but also what they've done to the Palestinian cause. But let's not invent things um, or distort things on top of that. Dr. Sheikh, do you believe that that terrorism, we've seen terrorism in, in, in other occasions and not in the Middle East, but do you believe that in general terrorism can help um, solve problems and in regard of, of um, uh, Palestinians and Israelis, can it help the solution of the two states or now it bears it for good? Terrorism, I think, is a terrible thing, whether it's conducted by non-state actors or, for that matter, by states. Um, and we do have the, the term state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, so, you know, and we do, I think, have states that, that conduct, that use terror quite deliberately. And we see that, say, for instance, in Ukraine today, in the way Russia has assaulted civilian targets. Um, and I think we must be ready to use the term to anyone who uses violence against unarmed civilians who, you know, who basically have no defense. And in this case, we really have to start looking at Israel as well. Now, that's one thing. The other is you're asking a question about whether terrorism actually helps. Well, I personally, whether as a Palestinian activist or as a strategic analyst or as a historian, I'm, I'm totally opposed to all forms of terrorism and have have done so from my youth. But I want to point out uh, an irony, which is that in the early 1970s, we and, and late 1960s even, when there were acts of Palestinian terrorism, such as hijacking civilian airliners, which I was opposed to then and still am opposed to now, there is an irony that Western governments paid no attention until you know until there were terrorist acts and that in no way justifies the terrorist acts and i'm someone who who has written repeatedly in arabic addressing arab and palestinian audiences criticizing what they called their armed struggle and in particular this kind of attack and i've been openly criticizing what hamas did in israel on the 7th of october unconditionally unequivocally um now whether after six months or six years, if, you know, after all this, we see an outcome in which Israel comes to the realization, finally, that maintaining a siege of two and a quarter million people for 16 years, in which the amount of food that, is, that Israel allows into the territory is measured scientifically, according to exactly how many calories per day two and a quarter million people needed, and no more is allowed in. This is the kind of system that Israel has maintained, and it's inhuman, and it goes against <laughs> entirely its responsibility under international law and against what we all claim to support, which is the peace process. So we may find that Israelis finally confront the reality that they can't have their cake and eat it too. They can't continue to expand settlements in Palestinian areas in the West Bank and Jerusalem every day. They can't maintain a blockade of an entire population for 16 years and at the same time refuse to offer a, a political horizon of Palestinian statehood. And here we have to raise the issue, which I blame in, in large measure for where we are today, and that is the abdication by Western governments 
of their own responsibility in where we have moved over 25 years. And I'm going to take a minute or more of your time to remind you that the European Council in March 1998, which means that it included the United Kingdom at the time, issued a statement endorsing Palestinian statehood unconditionally and unequivocally, a position that was repeated the following year when the so-called final status negotiations between the Palestine Liberation Organization and the government of Israel were about to start. And the European Council said that they it supported Palestinian statehood, that it hoped that this would happen through negotiation with the state of Israel, but that Palestinian statehood should happen with or without negotiations and with or without Israeli approval, that this was something, a matter of principle, and that they hoped that it would happen within one year of the start of the negotiations. So 25 years later, where is the European policy, not just today in the wake of 7 of October, where was it in 2000 or 2001 or 2002? Where was the US administration? So these same governments have failed to stop, to help stop Israeli colonization in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. During all those years, there is a law passed by the European Union requiring Israeli goods produced in Israeli settlements in occupied territories, not to be labeled as made in Israel, but to be labeled as made in Israeli settlements. and. You, you know, I challenge you to check on how many European governments have actually implemented or monitored implementation of their own law. So we have a case of massive abdication of responsibility by governments that now claim to support international law and the rules-based international order. So you have to understand why many countries around the world and many people around the world find this position lacking in credibility and why they regard this position as being one of double standards. Um, and, and finally, why, you know, for Western governments that have been supporting Ukraine, which I totally endorse and support, but why many people look at this and say, you, you know, you take one stand when it comes to Russian aggression in Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine didn't attack Russia, but then neither did Ukraine uh, you know, neither but, but in the way that Hamas attacked Israel. But then Ukraine is a sovereign state, supported and endorsed and protected by Western power and the international body in a way that the Palestinians have not seen protection and support by the very same Western governments that 25 years ago endorsed their right to self-determination, to freedom, to dignity, and to a normal life in their own country. Dr. Say, regarding what you said, I, 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 I listened very carefully. A few days ago, he was in Athens, Timothy Gardon Ash, and he said mm -hmm. that he had a meeting with Dick Cheney after 9-11, and uh, he asked him, uh, what, was, what, what were they going to do? What was their, uh, their goal uh, in attacking uh, Iraq and all that that uh, the Americans did at the time? And uh, Timothy Gardon Ash um, uh, told us that uh, he was not so surprised by the ruthlessness of Dick Cheney, but he was very surprised by his stupidity. And I want to bring that because that's also um, what Timothy Gardon Ash did. Um, and he said that 
what he doesn't understand, and I, I'm going to ask you now, not only as a Palestinian, but foremost as a historian, um, what do you think the goal of Netanyahu is at this at this moment? Of course, oh. Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel was attacked. Innocent civilians were killed, were massacred by Hamas. But now, when you have a war, you must have a goal. Isn't that so? You must have a plan for the next day. It's That's an excellent question. And also, your assumption is entirely correct that people who go to war, even if it's in self-defense, need to have uh, a goal or need to develop a goal uh, as soon as possible. Uh, partly because without clear political goals, it's very difficult to develop military strategy um, that that you know helps to uh, ensure those goals. Um, in the case of Israel, the, well, the short answer is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has no clear goal beyond the goal that he's been pursuing for the last two or more decades, which he has stated publicly certainly to the Israeli audience, is to prevent Palestinian statehood and to enable the extension of Israeli rule and control over the entirety of the land of Israel. Let me give you a quote, in fact, that I was working into an article of mine. Um, let me see if I can dig it up. Yeah, it's it's just something I was working on, and it's right in front of me, so I, I, I want to pick it up. So here is a tweet and on from the official account of Benjamin Netanyahu on the 28th of December last year, so less than a year ago, where he said that the Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all around the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop settlement in all parts of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, the Negev, in the Golan, in Judea, and in Samaria, which are his terms for the West Bank. So he, he has been saying this very publicly, repeatedly. He's also specifically said explicitly that his whole goal is to prevent Palestinian statehood. Western leaders hear this, they, 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 they know he says this, and that this is a direct contradiction with the pledges he made under American pressure in 2009. So in this war right now, Netanyahu doesn't have a clear, so to speak, operational goal. He has no plan for what happens in Gaza when he declares victory. What does he do with two and a quarter million Palestinians? What does he do with Gaza? So long as his stated goal is to claim the entirety of the land for Israel and to prevent Palestinian statehood. And I think this is a deep dilemma of the entire Israeli leadership at the moment. In one month or in six months, this war will, will, will end, at least for a while. And Israel will be in control of at least half of Gaza, if not all of Gaza. And it will be trying to work out an arrangement that protects its security, all of which may be understandable. But if it does so in a way that still blocks the possibility of reviving a Palestinian state, of reviving a two-state solution in which a Palestinian state is the goal living alongside Israel with mutual peace and mutual security for both, then in reality, um, his government 
has no, does not have a stable goal, does not have a durable or sustainable goal. It's also a goal that he shares with the far right. Uh, I think the problem for the sort of centrist parties that were demonstrating against his government almost all of this year is that they don't know, they don't have an answer to his long-term goal of increasing the settlement, claiming all the land, preventing Palestinian statehood. Because right now, there are 5 million Palestinians in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza under Israeli control of one kind or another, and another 2 million Palestinian citizens of Israel who effectively uh, are in second-class status. That's 7 million. That's as many as there are Jewish Israelis in the same land. And um, we see the Israeli political mainstream trying to continue to maintain its current policy um, where, you know, there is no answer to the question of, and what do you do with 7 million Palestinians? Or what do you do with the 5 million, at least, in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza? And at the same time, as I mentioned at the start, um, this same Israeli government and the one before it and the one before that and the one before that have been encouraging the expansion of settlements inside the West Bank and East Jerusalem, have been arming settlers, funding settlers, and now that many of the settlers form basically a far-right militia. I mean, these are people like Chrissy Avri in Greece. You know, the, these these are not <laughs> nice people. Yes, ah, yes. <laughs> I know, yeah. Right. They're fascists. I mean, their leader, Smotrich, calls himself a fascist. So, you know, the reality, I think, right now is Netanyahu has only one goal, and that is to survive politically and not to lose office, not to lose his control of being prime minister. Are you worried? Are you worried that the war could split in in the wider region of the Middle East, that Hezbollah may be more involved than it is already, or Iran? Are you worried that that could be the beginning of a bigger war? There is, of course, a much higher risk today of a wider war than a month, you know, five weeks ago, for sure. However, under present circumstances, it seems obvious by now that Iran does not want a wider war, not a direct war anyway, with Israel or the United States, nor is Iran interested at this stage in sacrificing Hezbollah for the sake of saving Hamas, let alone the sake of saving Gaza. Um, Nonetheless, there is a risk. And I think right now, the biggest risk doesn't come from Iran or Hezbollah, it comes from Netanyahu, because in order to avoid being held responsible, as many Israelis say they want to do, to hold him responsible for the failure of his policy of maintaining the siege of Gaza under Hamas government, in Gaza, it's something is a situation that we now understand, and and we have a lot of direct evidence. Uh, I mean, Israeli uh, security leaders and political leaders and commentators who have confirmed that Netanyahu actively sought to allow Qatari funding to allow other forms of assistance to reach Gaza because he wanted to encourage the. Uh, sustainability of Hamas rule in Gaza so as to divide the Palestinians, to weaken the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, 
uh, and to therefore enable increased Israeli colonization in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. We, we, we know this. He's been quoted in secret meetings, in meetings of the cabinet, of the security leadership, and so on. Now, in this situation where he, is, he knows he's going to be held accountable by his own people for the failure of his entire policy, he is, I believe, one reason he has opposed ceasefires or even humanitarian pauses in Gaza is because he doesn't want the fighting to stop because the moment the fighting stops, people will turn their attention to him, even if it's the fighting stops for a day or for four days. But certainly, the, the bigger risk, I think, is that if he starts to find that the fighting is dragging on, more and more Israelis start to ask the question of, so what do we do at the end of all this? What do we do with Gaza? What do we do with two and a quarter million Palestinians? How do we avoid rebuilding the occupation? And it's interesting to note that when he spoke of indefinite Israeli control of Gaza in the future, it was Israeli officials who immediately said, no, we haven't agreed that, that is not government policy, that is not our strategy. So why is he saying these things? It's not He's not stupid, unlike you, your quote of Timothy Garton-Ash from Dick Cheney, but because he is speaking to his far-right constituency and trying to ensure that they hear from him the things that please them. For instance, where he quoted, um, you know, he there was a biblical passage he quoted referring to the eradication of the tribe of Amalek in which God commanded his people to slaughter every man, woman, and child, and even baby, every ox and horse and donkey. This, this is the language Bibi Netanyahu uses when he speaks in Hebrew, and he's not speaking to secular Israelis. He's speaking to the far right because he will need them in the next stage. So my fear is that if he feels that the politics are going against him, he will be the one to seek escalation with Hezbollah in Lebanon, because that will serve his interest of creating even more militarization of Israeli politics and society, of making himself appear as a wartime leader who is ready to destroy all the enemies of Israel, so that at the end of all this, he will come out back in office on top. So right now, I mean, in a month's time, the calculations may change, Maybe Hezbollah will, um, you know, have a different calculation. But for now, it's very clear that Hezbollah is trying to keep the confrontations that are now happening in the south of Lebanon within uh, so-called rules of the game that have been established in the past between it and Israel, where neither side launches major attacks on civilians. If you or I hear in coming weeks that Israel has escalated beyond that red line, then we should understand that is a deliberate act at the wish of Netanyahu because he wants to force a bigger war on Hezbollah. That's that's why it will happen. It won't, I think, escalate beyond that, except by an Israeli decision. If uh, Donald Trump wins in the American elections that are coming, do you think uh, the situation in the Middle East deteriorating even more with Donald Trump again? Uh, in the White House? Um, very likely. I mean, I think the return of Donald Trump to the White House would be awful for the world, for everyone, for Europe, for NATO, for Arab countries, for the Palestinians, for 
you name it, um, it'll be a terrible outcome. Um, I mean, it's difficult to sort of start speculating on what more he can do to do more damage in the case of Palestine and Israel. I think his blind support for Israel and for this Israeli government of the far right, um, I mean, obviously this government was formed after he had lost office, but my point is he endorses the kind of ideology of the far right, whether in America or in Israel. This has done no service to Israelis, no service to the safety of Jews in, you know, uh, in, in the West, in Europe or in America. And on the contrary, we've heard various anti-Semitic statements from Trump, um, even even since the 7th of October. So I think he he would be very bad news for everyone, um, except for the far right, regardless of whether that far right is American, white, European, Jewish in Israel or elsewhere. The problem is, however, that it is sadly the 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 policy choices of the U.S. President Joe Biden, which has increased the risk of significant numbers of his own voters turning against him in the United States. Uh, they might not vote for Donald Trump, but simply by boycotting the next election, Biden may lose key swing states. And, you know, it is likely he will blame uh, Palestinian Americans or Arab Americans or Black Americans or even some Jewish Americans who've been brave and courageous and stood up and said, what is happening must not happen in my name in Gaza. Um, but the fact is that Biden has made choices, as has every preceding American president. And I again, I, I started this discussion with you objecting to your picking out this moment in time to talk about, you know, terrorism or human shields and so on, as if we haven't had, you know, 30 years of American policy in which Israel was able to expand its settlements with no penalty, in which Israel could sell settlement goods in Europe with no penalty, even though in both cases it was violating both the law and the established policy of these same American and, and European governments. Um, so we are all responsible for where we are today. And I think that whatever happens next in America, um, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party will have to look at themselves and see what role they played uh, and, and why we are here. And of course, in the US, the Democratic Party is responsible for more than just Palestine policy. It's also responsible for the loss of white working class votes. Uh, I'm not sure that the Democratic Party in the US has ever learned the lessons of why they lost these crucial votes and why they haven't won them back. Dr. Saik, thank you very much for this discussion. Thank you very much. Well, take care, Rudin, and uh, hope to see you next month. Yes, I hope so too. This was another Eliamep podcast with Odin Linardatu. Recording, editing and sound editing by Petros Karpathiou. Follow us on the Eliamep channels on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and elsewhere.